Welcome to episode five of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I am your host, Miles Taylor. I am very excited to be hosting this on Call-In, a social podcasting app that allows us to take live questions from listeners. And then, of course, later on, we will have the replay available for those who weren't able to join us. Really excited to bring Andrew Yang into the conversation. Now, many of you know Andrew uh, as the 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, a 2021 candidate for mayor in New York City. He's a man who was named by President Obama as a presidential ambassador of global entrepreneurship. He is a serial founder of organizations and a two time best selling author, first of the war on normal people where he helped famously introduce the idea of universal basic income. And he also released a book last year called Forward, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. And disrupting democracy is going to be a big focus of our conversation today. Andrew, welcome to Speaking Up. Miles, it's great to be here. And thank you for everything that you've done for the country. It took a lot of courage to speak up in the way that you did, and it, it inspired a lot of people. Well, I appreciate it, my friend. You know it well. Uh, this is a, it's a tough time to poke your head up out of the foxhole because everyone's ready to fire at you. So, and you know what that's like. But before we jump into the craziness and the discord in our political system, uh, you know, my friends call me Mr. Brightside for a reason. So I want to ask you for a, a note of optimism at the front end, and I'll ask for the same on the back end. Uh, the the pandemic is sort of waning, right? The restrictions are being lifted. But I'm curious to ask you, in the past two years of all of this, uh, what was the bright side of your pandemic experience? The bright side of my pandemic experience was spending time with my family in 2020 after my presidential campaign ended. Uh, I've been on the road an awful lot the previous 20 months or so, uh, and my family took it on the chin a bit. My kids are now nine and six, so at the time they were a bit younger, uh, and it, it was very welcome to actually spend some time with them uh, that I might not have otherwise, because uh, as you can imagine, uh, there, there were always demands uh, to be on the road. Yeah, no, absolutely. To, to have gone from campaign to campaign uh, and then have the world forcibly shut down was probably a silver lining for you. Yeah, it, uh, it, it was. I mean, it's not something I talk about that often because it was such a painful, uh, difficult time. But I didn't hate being uh, trapped in the house with my family. Well, good. Yeah, it was. It, look, it, the pandemic either brought families much closer together or, or taught people that they were cohabitating with the wrong person. So, you know, one way or the other, people got a little bit of instruction. Still married, Miles. Still married. <laughs> Congrats, my friend. Um, I, I, before we jump into democracy issues, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about what's driving the news. And you and I haven't had a chance to compare notes about Ukraine but where's your head at on the conflict? Do you think the administration's doing what they need to be doing? What worries you? Freestyle for me. What should we be thinking about when it comes to Ukraine? It's incredible how much damage one individual can wreak uh, in the, the form of this unjust 
profane, tragic war that's solely initiated by Vladimir Putin. There was a, a point early on when I thought uh, I felt like the U.S. might have been able to do more to dissuade uh, the conflict. But after the conflict started, uh, we should be supporting Ukraine in any way we can. It's people, it's refugees, it's leaders. I understand that the Biden administration wants to stop short of a particular line. Uh, and I, I respect that. But up, up to that point, we should be doing everything in our power. Yeah, I mean, we saw over the past few weeks a man that was largely unknown to the world, Zelensky, become, frankly, a cultural icon. Do you think that that, in some sense, is helping Ukraine, you know, put up a stronger front against the Russians? It seems to have drawn much more support than if, say, a, a non-uncharismatic leader had been leading the charge. Again, you can see the effect that one leader can have for good or ill. Uh, there are two sides of the same coin where Vladimir Putin has initiated an unjust, unnecessary war that's upending the lives of millions and millions of people. And then on the other side, you have President Zelensky inspiring the world with acts of selflessness and courage. And in my view, shaming many Western leaders to support Ukraine. If you, if you had had a different type of leader who, for example, had taken up uh, the American offer to leave or something along those lines, it would be a much less powerful case. Uh, and uh, I think that we're all seeing leadership in action on both sides. Well, uh, you know, on the topic of leadership and, and on standing up and speaking up, you know, you're not a shy guy. Uh, you know, I remember, Andrew, long before I ever met you, when you were out there talking about universal basic income, that was radical to a lot of folks and a pretty novel concept. You've always said you're a, a big problems guy. You like to solve big problems. UBI is a, is a, is a really bold solution to a huge problem of income inequality, but that wasn't uh, enough for you, apparently. <laughs> it wasn't enough to try to solve income inequality. Now you're solving democracy. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, first, let me say that the problem isn't just income inequality. It's the fact that we are increasingly automating away millions of livelihoods, and those that are left behind tend to be increasingly punitive. Uh, AI is coming online that for example, is going to do the work of over 2 million call center workers in the U.S. Uh, there are so many innovations behind the scenes that are transforming the way corporations function. Um, so income inequality is a part of it for sure, but I have many friends in technology who are doing this work every day, uh, and they, they tell me that their firms are rewarded for making people extraneous. Now, to your point about the other major problem that you and I are united on is that American democracy uh, is not living up to its name. Uh, I think there were some scholars who described us as an anocracy, which is somewhere between a, a true democracy and, unfortunately, the, the opposite end of the spectrum. And one of the things I've realized, Miles, is that the biggest problems that are facing us and people listening to this can fill in the blank of what they're most concerned about. It could be climate change. It could be the next pandemic. It could be uh, uh, 
uh, transforming economy, none of those problems are going to get addressed without a functioning political system. And you've been at the front lines of the dysfunction that has overcome this version of the Republican Party. Uh, it's unfortunately not confined just to the Republican Party. There are real structural issues that make it so that our leaders aren't truly representative or accountable. And it's driving the American people uh, to distress, insane anger over time. Yeah, you've said, uh, you know, as recently as the other day on Twitter, I think I saw you posted a stat, Andrew, that 62% of Americans want to move on from the duopoly. But, you know, when you and I talk about this, uh, you know, we know what the duopoly means. The majority of Americans don't even know that term. Tell us about what what you mean when you say that more than half the country wants to move past the duopoly. Most people are not rabid Democrats or rabid Republicans. <laughs> Most people show up. I'll just use myself as an example. So I'm the son of immigrants, grew up in this country. Uh, and then at some point you're in a particular environment. In my case, it was New York. And so you think, oh, what am I going to do? Let me register as a Democrat so I can participate at first in presidential elections. And the duopoly is that you're forced to be a Democrat or Republican uh, to compete for office, to vote in the vast majority of races, to make any headway uh, in a system that right now is effectively disenfranchising the majority of us. Uh, I think it's very, very rare that anyone looks up and says, yup, like I subscribe to everything that the Democratic Party says or I subscribe to everything the Republican Party says. And now each party is becoming uh, more of a minority party in terms of its values, what it stands for. And so you have this 62% of Americans looking for an alternative, but we're told that you can't have an alternative, that there has to be a D or an R next to the name of everyone running for office around the country, even though there was not a word about political parties, Democrat, Republican, or otherwise in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, you as, as part of the effort that you've launched, I, I was really interested to see this. I, I remember when there were rumors, Andrew, that you were going to launch something called the Forward Party. And the question is always, you know, if a new party is being created, what's its platform? You know, if it's uh, it would be charitable for me to describe the Republican Party as being for free minds, free markets and free people, because right now I don't think that uh, the Republican Party stands for any of its original founding pillars. But, um, you know, whenever you create a tribe, there's got to be core values. And I think a lot of folks were wondering, well, what are the core values going to be of this effort Andrew Yang creates? And it was really interesting to me. You launched the forward party premised on the notion that it's not, you know, a, a tick list of 25 different issues and here's where you stand on guns and abortion. It was the reform of democracy itself and a whole range of these reforms. I, I wonder if you could kind of help educate listeners on some of these things. We throw out buzzwords like jungle primaries and ranked choice voting. What are the core democracy reforms that you and the forward party want to see advanced? And how is that going to fix this big problem with our republic. The two-party system is fueling nearly unprecedented polarization. Miles, you and I know this very acutely, where 42% of 
both Republicans and Democrats view the other side as immoral, evil, their mortal enemies. About 50% of Americans would have a big problem if their child uh, was to marry someone of the opposite party. And it used to be that you didn't care. <laughs> you know, there were mixed marriages all the time, but now people have a, a problem with it. So the polarization is driving us to anger uh, and worse, uh, where you see the opposition as uh, un-American, as worthless, as in some cases not even human beings. So the principles of the forward party are around trying to recognize that this system itself is broken, uh, that we need a baseline of facts to work off of. So if you're not for facts, then, <laughs> then the forward party is not the right fit. Uh, we're for grace and tolerance, which is accepting different people's points of view and not uh, casting uh, attacks on folks who might have a different perspective than you do. Uh, we're for trying to solve the problems of this age. Uh, but there's a recognition that at this point, anything I'm for or against is moot in the current system. Uh, because right now, you have this two-sided dynamic that makes it such that each side, frankly, is rewarded more for making you angry about an unsolved problem than stepping forward for any kind of meaningful solution. Uh, so the Ford Party is essentially a party of solutions, but there is no solution possible if you don't have structural reform. Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you mobilize people around that? And you and I have had this conversation uh, before. How do you get folks excited about structural reform and, and help them identify sort of instantly why it affects them and, and their lives? How do you frankly mainstream it and and make make the desire for it as ubiquitous as you know a Nike swoosh? Uh, it, it's a challenge because. The appeal is a little bit different, as you say, Miles. And uh, I joke that in some ways you're trying to um, form a tribe out of people who resist uh, joining tribes. <laughs> so like the tribe a, of the tribeless. Yes, or a tribe of the non-tribal or something along those lines. <laughs> um, but th there is a sweet spot I've seen where there are people who are patriotic and passionate um, but also very, very pragmatic and rational. And they get very attracted to the forward party approach and message. Uh, and one of the things that is exciting about a polarized time is you don't need 51% <laughs> to transform American politics. You probably need about 10% uh, is my sense of it. Uh, and so can you form a very powerful, activated tribe around this 10%. Uh, and we're seeing that you can, particularly because the institutional failures are just so increasingly glaring. I can't tell you, I mean, you represent a patriotic Republican who realizes that the best thing for the country uh, is some form of reform, either within the Republican Party or of our politics generally. Uh, I hear from people who resemble you and who resemble Lifelong Democrats uh, who at this point are looking up saying, hey, th this 
party is not going to uh, be able to provide the path or the answers that the American people are looking for. And then they're also stepping forward and saying, hey, Andrew, at first I didn't really understand what you were doing, but now I'm, I'm starting to get it. Like, can you explain uh, right choice voting to me <laughs> or whatever it is? Um, so the energy just continues to grow every day because the current parties aren't uh, able to deliver. You know, the the market aspect of this to me has always been really fascinating. I mean, you're a, a student of economics or, 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 or really a PhD in, in modern economics in, in my mind. And I can't think of any other marketplace in the world where more than half of the consumers say they don't like any of their choices. <laughs> and that's literally what we're seeing in the American democratic marketplace is more than half of voters, as you noted, you know, the 62% who say they want to move on, they're unhappy with their choices. I mean, right now, I always say this, whether it's ride shares or food that I can order or clothes that I can buy, I've got unlimited choice and competition in every aspect of my life, except ironically in my democracy. So there seems to be a huge opportunity for disruption. Again, if this was a private marketplace, a zillion venture capital firms would say, wow, let's go disrupt that. Consumers don't feel like they have a choice. Do you view it in economic terms? Well, I, I do to the analogy you just mentioned, which is if you showed up in a marketplace and there were two providers and then a majority of people wanted something else, you would rush to create a third provider, maybe even a fourth provider and a fifth provider. <laughs> It's just in politics, people, again, have been conditioned to think, well, uh, it has to be one of the two parties. And if you do anything outside of those parties, then you're a spoiler, you're a crank, uh, you're a narcissist, uh, you know, whatever the uh, cudgel is. Um, and, and what's fun, Miles, is that I've actually found the reverse, is that people who are working in a reform movement or uh, 30 third party efforts are the most principled altruistic people I've ever met in politics because there is no upside except for the salvation of the country. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like no one joins uh, a reform movement being like, this is going to be my fast track to Capitol Hill. I mean, the fact is someone like you, I mean, <laughs> like, like, like you could have, uh, I mean, you could have, you know, frankly, made your bones within the Republican Party for the rest of your life, given how senior you were, um, but you stood up for what you believed in. And uh, there has to be a support base for that. There has to be a market for that. Well, well you said one of the buzzwords, spoiler, and I'm going to get to that in just a second. But, but another buzzword came up just now without you saying it, and that's grift. You know, one of the first accusations I think you and me and, and others get in this political reform space is it's just a grift. They're trying to make money off of you. Now, I'll say the asterisk is that's a very real concern. I mean, look at what Donald Trump is doing. He's raised north of $100 million. He's not giving it out to his candidates. In fact, he just sent out an email the other week asking them to buy him a new airplane. <laughs> All right, that's that's grift. Um, you know, in, in my case, uh, I, I gave up seven-figure opportunities to, you know, go, uh, go live on a shoestring budget to do political reform. This is not a money-making space. Um, how do you address 
that question of grift, Andrew, when when folks throw it out there? Um, you know, I, I think it's just a sign of how uh, skeptical and dubious people are, where to your point, Miles, there are approximately 10,000 easier ways to make money. <laughs> Definitely. And, and we'll get into those later in this chat, because I'm going to ask you about what's happening in tech and AI, all the things that you and I could go quit and do and, and just be absolute, you know, disruptors in a different marketplace. Yeah, like the, there, there's not an enormous marketplace for jumping up and down and saying, hey, you're being manipulated. This two-party <laughs> system is designed to fail and result in political conflict over time uh, and insanity and anger. And uh, let's try to change things, even though, by the way, there's like a, now a multi-billion dollar uh, set of incentives and enormous media conglomerates trying to push like the, the same message that it's the other side's fault and you just eke out this win, all will be well, even though the quality of life disintegrates around you all the time, which, by the way, is one of the things that's driving the rancor. Um, so, that there, you know, one of the things that I'm excited about, though, Miles, is that the case that you and I are making uh, is making itself to more and more people every day. Where, uh, more and more people are waking up being like, wait a minute, uh, like, I, I thought that uh, you know, we, if we got um, this particular person out of office, that uh, all would be well and things are not well. And so, like, you know, what's going on here that, that there's like a um, like a massive opportunity right now because uh, the scales are coming off of people's eyes. The veil is being lifted. People are able to see behind the curtain more and more. That was three metaphors in a row, and it was very impressive. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't stitch three metaphors together, let alone accurately convey one. Um, the second word that we talked about, Andrew, spoiler. Right? This, is, this is the watchword that the, the two parties use to knock down third-party movements, independent candidates. The first thing they say is you're a spoiler. You're going to ruin this. And, and we're seeing this in races that you and I are excited about around the country. I mean, our friend Evan McMullen is running for Senate in Utah as an independent candidate. And he's running to, to try to take out Mike Lee, someone who supported you know, Trump's efforts to overturn the election. Um, but you know, a Democrat has not won statewide in, in a race like that in decades in Utah. And so Mike Lee was just coasting to reelection until Evan entered the race. Yet still, there's a lot of folks there saying, well, he's a spoiler. How do you get past that argument and convince folks that, you know, an independent candidate or a third party candidate is not only not a spoiler, they're, you know, a new hope? Well, Miles, what I found is that most people aren't looking for a real solution because the obvious response to someone who is concerned about someone being a spoiler is just switch to ranked choice voting in the general election, and then there are no more spoilers. Uh, and then instead of doing what you'd think they would do, is be like, oh, really? We can do that? Let's do that. Like, instead, they, they uh, are still negative. <laughs> I mean, like, the, the fact is, people aren't concerned about the spoiler so much as they're concerned about control. Uh, you know, like, that, they want to make it so that you don't have a genuine option, because if you had a genuine option, you would certainly not vote for their person over and over again. Or their their slate 
of people, most of whom you have zero familiarity with, uh, you know, so there's like this set of institutions that are just there to, to uh, maintain power. Um, and the, the fact is in most or many of envi- many of these environments around the country, uh, it's not even a two party system. It's a one party system. <laughs> you know I mean? Like you, you don't have meaningful competition. Um, to your point about Evan McMullen, uh, any rational person looking at that race would say, one, Evan is like you. He's a patriot. He wants to do the right things. I, I, you know, I'd put Evan in charge of anything and feel like he'd have my best interest at heart. But two, he is approximately uh, 10,000% better chance of winning than any Democrat in the state of Utah. I know, like mm-hmm. it, it's, I mean, he's a former CIA operative. He's an independent that a lot of people in Utah will be like, okay moral, like no problems with this person. Uh, and maybe I have an issue with Mike Lee, you know, but if you put a D next to someone's name in Utah, there'll be all of these negative associations that immediately get, um, get brought to that person. And I experienced this where when I was walking around the Midwest and I would say, Hey, running for president, they would say, uh, what party? And I'd say Democrat. And they'd like recoil. It'd be like, ew. (laughs) (laughs) And you'd be like, huh, you know, that's not, it's not great. Um, and one of the, the things that I joke about, but it's pretty accurate, is that if you just had an unfreighted political brand, let's call it the forward party, <laughs> uh, you know, just having a blank slate is actually enormously positive and helpful because then maybe they'll listen to you. Maybe they'll uh, listen to your message. You came up with, uh, something that I was so jealous of because I wish I had trademarked it first is when you guys launched forward, it's got the cleanest slogan of any political party in the United States, not left, not right forward. And as soon as that went live, I said to my team, damn it. <laughs> why, why didn't we think of that? Why didn't we get that first? But the branding, I mean, going back to the branding piece, that's really important. I mean, you've got to reach people today within seconds or, or they tune out. Um, and, and you've been really, really good at crystallizing these things for folks to understand quickly. But, but even still, you know, there's the challenge of, frankly, the, the skeptics out there. And, and you deal with this every day. And I want to ask you on a, on a semi-personal note, you know, things like online trolling. I mean, if you stand up for anything today, whether whether you're Andrew Yang and you run for president or you're just a school board, you know, member and and you stand up for what's right, you get attacked. And it's not just by people close by. It can be someone hundreds or thousands of miles away. Uh, how do you deal with that? I mean, even just today. Right, Andrew? I mean, you and I you know, both said, hey, let's uh, hop on. We're going to be on a podcast. I guarantee you somewhere on your Twitter, someone is saying, why the hell would you talk to Miles Taylor? Somewhere on my Twitter, someone's saying, you know, ew, why Andrew Yang? I mean, there's just this vitriol, people saying things on social media that they would never say to your face. How, how do you deal with that, you know, quote unquote, cancel culture type vibe? Yeah, social media doesn't bring out the best in a lot of people. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I uh, approach it with, which is you have a time when millions of people are very, very stressed out, they're deprived of human contact, uh, they're, in a t- and they're in an environment where uh, people are trying to polarize you, uh, 
uh, you know, to the tune of, again, billions and billions of dollars are getting spent. Uh, there are enormous financial incentives towards trying to separate us into ideological camps. So then in, in that environment, if you say anything, then you expect there to be a degree of negativity. Um, and as long as you approach it in that vein, I feel like, okay, you know, like I, it, this is going to sound kind of funny, but it's like, it's not personal. They don't know you. They don't know me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, like that they, to them, we are avatars. We're these media figures. Uh, and, you know, they, they've been trained to be mad at us uh, based on like another social media figures, cues or whatever the heck it is. Um, so I, I don't pay much attention to it. Like to me, especially if your goal is, as my goal is, I think your goal might be similar, to energize and activate 10% of Americans to say, look, we can deliver better for ourselves, um, then you don't worry that much about people who aren't in that 10%. Yeah. Well, I mean, to that, uh, we'll take uh, a few calls uh, from callers here because I think that's one of the ways you diffuse this is you go face-to-face with folks, you engage with them so that you're not just an avatar. Uh, although before I take the next caller, uh, and, and that'll be D, who's in the call queue, I'll note, Andrew, there's a, a, a quote that's been stuck in my head for the past few weeks, which is, uh, you know, don't judge a man until you walk a mile in his shoes. Um, then you're a mile away and you've got his shoes. So uh, anyway, is a, <laughs> I always love that joke. <laughs> it's something to think about in this day and age. Um, we're going to take a, a question here from D. Uh, D, I'm going to invite you to uh, hop in here with your question. Hey. Hey, D, how are you? Oh, we might have lost we might have lost D there. Uh, I think Dade is next in the caller queue. D, you might want to jump back into the caller queue. Sorry, we lost you. Dade, you're up next. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, Miles, thanks for hosting this. Andrew, it's a pleasure to talk to you. First came across you, I guess, 2017 when you did Sam Harris's podcast. So I've been following you for some time, and um, I thought you had a great presidential campaign, and I donated to you at the time. So it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. And if I could maybe just put some questions to you that are at the forefront of my mind about the forward party. Um, first Please. question is about ranked choice voting and um, the critique of ranked choice voting that it produces a winner that is um, unsatisfactory to everyone. At, at least that's a criticism I've heard. And, and an example of this is that the question of who would have won the 2020 Democratic primary if it was ranked choice voting. Um, so my first question to you is, what do you think of that critique? And who do you think would have won the 2020 Democratic primary had it been ranked choice? Oh, thanks for the question. The data I've seen suggests that it's the opposite, where you're much more likely to settle on a candidate that the majority of people find at least somewhat likable or acceptable. Uh, and this is particularly true if you have take any instance, let's say there are four candidates. And this happened in real life in Maine. I, I, it was either three or four candidates where the governor got elected with significantly less than 50% support. And in a ranked choice voting environment, you need to be, if not the first choice, then at least on the ballot of 50.1% of individuals. So it, it should result in a more agreeable candidate rather than a less agreeable candidate, particularly if you have multiple folks. Uh, I think that 
in the Democratic race, Joe Biden probably benefits from ranked choice voting because there weren't many people that just hated Joe. You know what I mean? Like Bernie had a very passionate base of support, but then there were a significant number of voters that would be like, no way, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Joe Biden, if he wasn't your first choice, you could justify him as your second or third choice. And I actually think that's what happened in real life. <laughs> Where uh, when Jim Clyburn came out for me in South Carolina, there was like a collective, okay, I'm choosing between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, and I choose Joe Biden. Yeah, you know, Andrew, it's striking to me. You, you put it so clearly. One of the, you know, the easy and false criticism of ranked choice voting is the critics will come out and say, no, you know, one one person, one vote, as if ranked choice gives you a zillion votes. It doesn't. It actually just makes your vote matter more. <laughs> you know, in most of these races, your vote doesn't matter. I mean, as you said, you know, it's it, it, the system is really locked down in a lot of places to favor just one party. So ranked choice just makes your vote matter, whereas otherwise it wouldn't. Um, I want to uh, give Dee a chance to uh, jump in here. Dee, it's my fault that we uh, we skipped past you, and then we'll go to Amy and Jenny in the queue. So, Dee, feel free to hop in with your question. Hey, can you hear me? There we go. Yes, hey, Andrew. Yeah, my question is, how do you define with um, the, for, the your party a clear message? Because... One of the things I've noticed is that I think more Americans, even though they think of themselves as apolitical or hating both parties or have a side. um, And I've just noticed that sometimes when there's not a very, very defined message, particularly on the culture war stuff, um, the party ends up serving one of the big parties. A third party could end up serving one of the big parties or the other. So like on the left, sometimes there's such pushback against the Democratic Party that it ends up aligning with the Republican party and, and vice versa. Um, and like, like for example, Joe Rogan is someone who's um, ostensibly apolitical, but because of certain cultural takes he t- takes, he ends up having um, a pretty right wing audience. So how do you, how does your party def- depend, uh, plan on uh, defining uh, its message in that way? Now, this is one of the challenges, the end Uh, It speaks to the incentives that I referred to earlier, where let's say you have a hot button issue, and then if you come out on one side of it, then a lot of people will be like, yeah, then other people will be like, no, Um, but you get pushed to have a stance one way or another. Uh, The question is, how many Americans look at that issue and say, like, look, this is not central to my life. This is not what we should be focusing on. I'm sure the media and the social media will, will pile in. Um, but let's try to concentrate on something that's going to matter to me more than this thing you're telling me matters. Uh, now, uh, again, that's a difficult appeal because it doesn't hit our buttons <laughs> in the same way. Uh, but there's, I believe, a significant proportion of Americans who do regard a lot of the culture war issues as uh, not central. Uh, you know, like there, there are people who feel like, hey, like, why are you uh, trying to uh, inflame me one way or another when like the thing I care most about is like my kid's school being open, you know, and Hey, my, my kid's school's not open. Like I'm unhappy regardless of what, what other stuff you're telling me. Um, so it's tough. Uh, you know, one of the things that is happening right now with the forward party, um, is that we don't necessarily feel obligated to chime in on every 
issue because we believe that uh, you'll end up playing into other people's hands in terms of like a narrative and you'll wind up um, having to be on one side or the other. Next answer in the queue, we have Amy Vanderpool, who's an analyst at uh, BBC Radio. Uh, Amy, excited to have you here. Uh, feel free to jump in with your question. Hi. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm excited to be talking with both of you. Um, hi, Amy. Hi. Um, I was actually at the Miami debates in June in 2019, uh, Mr. Yang. I thought you did a fantastic job. So great job with that. My question is, um, what did you really see as as different when you went from, you know, launching your campaign and being mostly based in social media and having all of your people behind you and then switching to more of a ground game as you built up steam and you got bigger and you sort of, you know, got out there more and you were meeting with people and you were talking with people. What were the major differences in those shifts? Because it seems like there's such a different ground game, literally in the ground game versus social media. What did you notice were the bigger differences? Did you see that people cared about things that were different or were they really the same? What shifts really surprised you? Well, such a tactical question. I'm happy to share war stories. And my most recent book is filled with these war stories, if you have an interest. Uh, so, so you get a bunch of energy from social media and podcasts. Uh, you raise tens of millions of dollars, and then you try and make your case in Iowa and New Hampshire, but primarily Iowa. Uh, and so you meet with Iowa voters. Um, so some math. It turns out that about 6% of Iowans are going to participate in the Democratic caucus. Uh, so you're really trying to home in on like a very, very narrow band of voters. Uh, it turns out that the folks who were energized on the podcast didn't necessarily overlap with that. <laughs> that group. Uh, the average Iowa caucus goer, I think the, the average age is maybe like 52 or something along those lines, which is like a, a more of a cable news consuming audience than a podcast consuming audience. Uh, so then how do you try to make yourself the candidate for a critical mass of those people? Um, and it turns out that you wind up spending a lot of money on TV uh, to make yourself uh, more plausible and acceptable. You, you do cable news hits. Uh, and uh, in my case, this stuff wasn't enough uh, to push me. So it was enough to push me into consideration where a majority of Iowan Democrats who are going to be caucus goers by voting time saw me as someone that they could support. If there was a ranked choice voting uh, ballot, for example, I would have been on the ballots of a lot of people. Um, I won the Iowa uh, youth straw poll as one data point where young people were excited about me. Um, the majority of Iowans actually picked me number one as candidate they'd want to have a beer with, uh, to give you a sense of it. <laughs> and they um, still would. Oh, that's nice of you to say. Um, but then the, the number one uh, drawback I had was, um, has the right experience to defeat Donald Trump? Because if you think about their main concern at that point, it was who can beat Donald Trump. Um, so that was my experience trying to translate the resources, the energy, the uh, relatively youthful enthusiasm to uh, on-the-ground votes. Uh, and it turns out that those demographics are significantly different. Well, that was a, a great question from 
Amy and Andrew, yours is a real life example of how some of these reforms could really impact our political system. Uh, I want to take a, another question before I jump into a few on technology and going into a totally different space. Uh, we've got Jenny next in the queue here. Uh, caller, jump in with your question. Hi, Miles. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Jenny. Hey. It's wonderful to be able to talk to both of you. Um, Andrew, I was wondering if you've heard of Dinesh D'Souza's new documentary. It's called 2000 Mules, and it's going to be coming out next month. I haven't heard of it. Um, no, you want to describe it? Yeah, the idea is that there were upwards of 2,000 people who were illegally dropping ballots in swing states, and that this has been documented and is evidence that there was some significant voter fraud in the 2020 election. The only thing that's dropped so far is the trailer, but it's it's a pretty compelling trailer, so I find it interesting you haven't heard of it. Yeah, no, first I've heard of it. I will say that I'm deeply skeptical of efforts to paint uh, this election as stolen. Uh, you know, I haven't seen any hard evidence for that. Yeah, Jenny, I'm glad you asked the question too. Um, and, and, and here's why. Um, I have spent uh, a lot of time thinking about election security. And, you know, Andrew said something earlier about avatars. It, it's It's really easy for folks like he and I and others to, to just kind of become avatars and look like political talking heads. But before this short life uh, I've had in politics, most of my career was just in national security. Uh, and and it was spent working on election security, in fact. So after the Russian interference in the 2016 election, that was my number one priority at the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration was to make sure that we made the next presidential election the most secure in American history. And I'm sure, Andrew, you share this concern that the the big lie, the notion that the election was corrupted, uh, could not be further from the actual facts. And again, I say that as someone who, within that administration, had overseen the efforts to protect the election. And, and my good colleague, Chris Krebs, who was personally appointed by Trump to oversee the security of the election, came out in uh, November of last year and said, no, or November of 2020 and said, this was the most secure election in modern history. And since then, a range of investigations across the country have turned out that no, there was no systematic fraud. No, Donald Trump did not win the election. It was legitimately secure. So, you know, maybe ignore the talking heads about this, but look, those some of us spent years working across the country with Democrats, Republicans, independents, election officials who just wanted to make sure that the integrity of the vote was there. And, and I can personally assure you uh, it was. So, uh, you know, Andrew, I don't know if you have anything else to add on, on election security, but I, I think it's really important that we be clear about it. No, I'd, I'd certainly defer to you on, on this, Miles. Uh, you spend more time on it than I have for sure. Uh, well, Andrew, uh, before we wrap today, I want to ask you a couple of questions on another space where you have not only expertise, but a hell of a lot of passion. And that's that's in the broader tech space. So whether it's AI or crypto or DAOs, you kind of always seem to be at the bleeding edge of the next big you know, technology movement. What do you think right now in these spaces where you dabble 
there's going to be major disruption that people don't realize. You know, maybe it's one of those those words that I threw out. Maybe it's another one. But what, what's the disruptive force that folks aren't quite looking at yet, but should be? Well, I, I don't think we properly reckoned with some of the uh, shifts in uh, office work to virtual work. Uh, there was a poll recently that Time Magazine, it was on Twitter, so it's biased. Um, but the, the vast majority of workers um, wanted to either work from home uh, or virtually. Uh, and what this is going to mean for urban centers uh, is really dramatic. Uh, you know, you're seeing like a, a vast resorting uh, of different types of organizations, different types of workers, uh, and companies are going to invest more and more in making this more functional from their perspective. Uh, but when I joke that you and I are avatars to most people, Miles, uh, like more and more people are just going to be avatars to their coworkers <laughs> pretty soon. You know, like when you see them in real life, it's going to be, uh, you know, different. So uh, I, that that's uh, that's still shaking out because there is a strong tendency among different types of organizations to think, well, like maybe it'll revert, maybe it'll snap back. Um, but I, I think this is here to stay, and I, I think that there are going to be major beneficiaries and major losers. What about on um, – let's educate people who are listening about something they've never heard of. You know a lot about DAOs. Tell us what a DAO is and how that might change the way we engage as a society in everyday transactions or, or big transactions. So a DAO is a fancy new term for uh, decentralized autonomous organization. Uh, so what the heck is that? What it is, is it's a collective where there isn't a traditional CEO who says, hey, here's what we're going to do, and then you all do it or we all do it. Um, it it's more of like a, a, a voting collective where um, you say to folks, hey, I think we should be um, investing in this. And then if enough people agree with you, then you invest in that. Um, so it's been used to channel investment. Uh, it's been used for a particular cause or purpose. Um, and it's very, very new. It's early. I'm excited about DAOs because they have the potential to be the future of activating a political movement uh, and of maybe uh, an example of what democracy could look like in the 21st century, where you instead of having an elected leader who comes up every four years, uh, maybe different people are able to make their opinions uh, known or felt on a particular issue in closer to real time. Uh, so I started two DAOs over the last number of days, uh, Lobby 3 DAO, which is meant to lobby for, <laughs> for uh, sensible regulations vis-a-vis uh, uh, Web3 technologies, uh, and then Golden DAO, which is going to help organize uh, API leaders and contributors uh, to be able to do things that will uh, help address some of the issues that are facing Asian Americans uh, to a higher degree right now. So DAOs, if someone says DAO, it means 
decentralized autonomous organization. You don't need to remember that. Uh, just think of it as a voting collective that doesn't have a traditional leadership structure. So, Andrew, I, I want to blow people's minds for a second here that are listening. And you have talked a lot about artificial intelligence and how AI is, is really going to change the future. Folks don't quite know what this is going to look like yet. They haven't had that tangible experience. So I want to give people one right now. Um, you are aware very much, I'm sure, of G what's called GPT-3. Um, so it's this, it's this open AI platform that allows you to go in and use, basically develop your own AI tools and, and programs. And anyone who's listening right now can go do this. And just for fun, Andrew, while we've been speaking, I went into GPT-3 and, and just gave it a test. So what you can do is you can just enter text and then the AI completes the text for you. So I could say, you know, what's a cat? And then it's gonna answer for me and tell me what a cat is. Well, I wanna read this to you and bear with me because this, this one even shocked me. So I go into the AI platform and this is what I entered, Andrew. This is Miles's text. I typed, toward the end of the podcast, Miles started to ask Andrew Yang about disruptive technology. That's it. That's all I entered. And then I hit generate. And then it generates something to follow on. It could generate gibberish, but it doesn't because it's smart. I'm going to read you what the AI came up with after that. I'll read it in my voice and then my fake Andrew voice, which will be the same. I typed nothing else. It then said, Miles, colon, as if I'm speaking. So one last question for you, Andrew. You're a guy who's very interested in technology and how it's changing the world. And I'm curious, what do you make of this sort of, you know, what people call disruptive technology potential? Obviously, it's changing the nature of work. It's changing the way we live. It's changing the way we interact. What do you make of that potential? Then the AI system creates an Andrew Yang character and it says, Andrew Yang. Yeah, it's a great question, Miles. And I think it's one we should all be thinking about a lot more. I mean, there's no question that technology is changing the world in profound ways. And you know, we're really only at the beginning of it. I mean, we're in the early innings of what I call a digital revolution and it's just starting to take off. So I think on one hand, we should be excited about the potential, but also wary. And then Andrew, it creates me again. And it says, Miles, are people ready for it? And then it concluded, Andrew Yang. I think people are starting to become more aware of the changes that are happening, but there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty. And that's natural. What does the future hold for me? What does it hold for my job, my kids' jobs? And you know, I think that's understandable. Even though there may be some pain in the short term with the digital revolution, in the long term, we're gonna be better off for it. That was all created by an AI system in about two seconds. Yeah, the, one of the innovations that people should see coming uh, is AI journalists. Uh, China has been experimenting with having AI news anchors who, by the way, can be there 24 seven. They don't need breaks. They don't need makeup. Uh, you know, they don't gossip. <laughs> it, sounds, it, it sounds dystopian, but uh, having been a media contributor, as I know you have, Miles, <laughs> it's, it, it's something that's surprisingly susceptible to technological replacement. Well, Andrew, it just, it just put my podcast uh, off the air. I mean, the, the AI just basically wrote a, a transcript of our conversation and, and eerily anticipated us talking about the future of work and disruption. Um, you know, what, what's this going to mean? I mean, you said for the future of work, but, but beyond that, when it comes to, you know, national security and public safety issues or disinformation in our political system, 
Are you concerned about tools like this being weaponized? Oh yeah, and I'm sure you are too. Uh, I'm sure right now they are being weaponized by international actors. Uh, so we have to think much, much bigger. I mean, we have a mid 20th century framework of the economy that is becoming increasingly obsolete and people's lives are being upended uh, all of the time now and they're, they're just being left to, to uh, in, in some cases, self-destruct, unfortunately. I, I think our country is going to be struggling with different manifestations of this. Um, we have uh, 20th century political, so, hey, mid-19th century political system. Uh, we have the media organizations that have become almost expressly uh, appendages to various political parties. So it, it's going to be very, very rough. And uh, we have to think much, much bigger. One of the things that happened to me um, when I was writing The War on Normal People is I was like, look, I just want to deliver straight facts to people as much as I can so that it's not like, oh, you're arguing this, you're arguing that. It's like, no, look, I'm just going to give you a bunch of facts. <laughs> but what happened to me when I was writing The War on Normal People is it actually pushed me towards some big lofty questions about what is the meaning of life? Like what is the meaning of civilization? What, what is our purpose? Uh, and that's where you wind up landing miles. When you start digging deeply into the impact of this technological transformation, if you imagine a world where, where AI can do, let's say 40% of our jobs for us in two seconds, like you just partially demonstrated, what the heck do you do then? And then you have a bunch of people. It's like, maybe, we're not actually meant to be measured by what the market says that you're worth. Maybe a caregiver should be worth more than zero. Maybe if a person's job gets uh, made obsolete, then this is not a cause for despair, but maybe like, you know, maybe there's like a, a, a bigger adaptation that's necessary. Um, so that's what my presidential campaign was about. And it's more true now than it was then um, because, unfortunately, the pandemic pushed many organizations to invest in uh, things that they were, were previously putting off. Well, incisive as always, Andrew. And before we wrap up here, I'll, I'll give you a minute to think about my last question, which I ask a lot, um, which is I want to know what music you're listening to. And we'll get to that in a second. So I'll give you a moment to think about what's top of your queue right now so folks can add something to their Spotify or Apple Music and know that they're jamming to the same thing Andrew Yang is. But I want to tell you this. I put in one more question into the OpenAI playground, and I asked, will a third party disrupt the U.S. political system? That's it. I hit generate. Instantly, it came back with this short response. A third party could potentially win enough support to become a major force in American politics, which could lead to significant changes in the way the country is governed and the future of American democracy. So if we're to, to believe the magic eight ball that is AI, uh, there's some real potential here to what you're doing in it with Forward Party and, and what we're trying to do in this space. So I'm excited about it. But um, close us out, Andrew, with, you know, what are your jams right now? What do, what do you listen to in your AirPods when you're off for a run or, or, or a drive? Thanks, Miles. Uh, I, I want to verify what the AI just said. <laughs> so I, want, I, I want people to, to think about how many U.S. senators it takes to control uh, the legislative agenda right now? And the answer in a polarized country is one, maybe max two. So let's imagine that there were four independent senators 
in the beginning of next year. Let's call one of them Evan McMullen. Let's call another one of them Lisa Murkowski. Let's call another of them Joe Manchin. Uh, and is that something that's achievable and feasible? Like, heck yes. You know, one of the, the fun ideas I had, and I'm going to pitch it to you and the people you know, Miles, is we should start a giant crowdfunded legislative uh, liberation fund where if you decide to leave one of the major parties, your next election is funded. <laughs> because yes. Yes, right? Because having that independent set of legislators like could could break up our political dynamic and give us a path out of this uh um this mess. So th- this this isn't a hypothetical necessarily, you know, you could have um this happen over the next uh 9 months. Uh folks, you heard it first here today that Miles and Andrew officially decided to team up on the legislative liberation fund. Uh, and and by the way, you, you saw us get, get put out of business uh, in the podcast medium by artificial intelligence. So a lot happening today, Andrew, <laughs> just here in this hour. I can't thank you enough for joining us. I'm still going to put you on the spot. You owe me. Of course. I'm very happy to talk about my musical preferences. So uh, so there, there are times when, um, you know, uh, you have your ups and downs, like there are victories and defeats every single day. And one of the things I tell myself all the time is like, man, if young Andrew could imagine what you're doing now, he would be just awestruck. Because if you can imagine, you know, like a son of immigrants, me growing up in upstate New York. Um, and so I tend to play the music I was listening to at that time, which was 80s music. It's uh, Prince. Duran Duran, The Cure, a little bit of Hall and Oates. Um, that that stuff is it just puts me in a different frame of mind because like you know it's like oh and, and I also think the eighties was a very happy musical time. Uh, Michael Jackson. Um, so uh, that's the stuff I tend to queue up. You have got a very a very cool sonic sphere, my friend. <laughs> I think if you weren't running for public office the past few years, maybe you would have started sort of a retro 80s band. Oh, you wouldn't want to hear me uh, saying so. (laughs) Well, Andrew Yang, disruptor of many things, and most recently the American political system, we cannot thank you enough for joining us today and and genuinely, brother, for, for being in this really, really important fight right now. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you, Miles. You're a patriot and a leader, and I'm pumped to make common cause with you. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on Speaking Up. We've got some great guests coming next week, and you can listen to the replay of this podcast later today. Thanks, everyone.